the 11th episode of Rewriting the Narrative, Women in the Justice System. I would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being put together on the land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to Elders past and present and any of our First Nations people who may be listening. I'd also like to acknowledge the significant over-representation of our First Nations people in both our justice and statutory systems across Australia and also make this a call for significant reform to change this narrative for our future generations. For this episode, I'm thrilled to welcome Elena Campbell, Catherine Caruana and Dorothy Armstrong from RMIT's Centre for Innovative Justice. Elena is the CIJ's Associate Director for Research, Advocacy and Policy. She is a lawyer, researcher and former speechwriter and political staffer that's worked in the legal and social policy arena for over 20 years. She has expertise in systems reform and advocacy in the areas of family violence, therapeutic justice, women's decarceration, equal opportunity and human rights. Catherine Caruana is a Senior Advisor at the CIJ supporting the centre's priority research stream into women in the justice system and the need to develop alternatives to prison. Catherine has extensive experience in research and policy law and is the lead author on a recent paper published by the CIJ, which we'll be discussing in more detail today. Dorothy Armstrong is also joins us and is the CIJ's lived experience advisor and peer support worker and comes with a wealth of personal experience and insight. She's been recognised for her advocacy work for people living with disability and trauma, having received the Victorian Disability Award in 2018. Thank you all for giving your time to be part of this podcast. Um, I must say I'm a, I feel a little bit overwhelmed to have such esteemed guests, um, but we have seen that this platform's a fantastic way to reach quite a diverse audience and um, really advocate and further the tremendous work you are all doing at the Centre for Innovative Justice. So your paper, Leaving Custody Behind, Foundations for Safer Communities and Gender-Informed Criminal Justice System, not only consolidates the evidence around the drivers bringing women in contact with the justice system, which we've discussed in previous podcasts, but it also captures the experience of women's or women's experiences of the justice system and speaks to the reforms needed to address this national crisis. So, Elena, can you please give us a bit of background on the Centre for Innovative Justice? Yeah, thanks, Lisa, and thank you so much for having us here today. Um, the Centre for Innovative Justice is a research and reform body based at RMIT, and we, uh, we conduct research, obviously, to identify issues and challenges across the justice system. We define the justice system pretty broadly because we understand that all sorts of things people uh, inter, um, interact with people's experience of the justice system and also drive them into contact with it. But we also then work with courts, government departments, statutory authorities to try and address those challenges and um, implement solutions instead. So we run a program of research and reform work across a range of issues which drive people into contact with the criminal justice system, family violence, crime, victimisation, disability, um, a whole range of different things. But particularly, um, we have a program of work looking at women's contact with the criminal justice system. And that's where this project is situated. So I can um, talk you through how we started on this particular project. We've got a range of different 
um, pieces of research looking at different angles or aspects of women's um, contact with the criminal justice system. But we were conscious that it's a really, really complex area. So what we wanted to do was bring together and consolidate quite extensive evidence in a more accessible um, way so that people had what they needed to know in one place and it could function as a useful resource in that particular way. But we also knew that we couldn't just rely on the literature, that the most important perspectives are always from people on the ground. So we, over the course of a couple of years, we've been working with a lot of different stakeholders and we conducted a sort of series of perhaps what you'd call scoping consultations with a range of different agencies who work with women in contact with the criminal justice system so that we could always test what we saw in the literature against what was actually happening on the ground. Um, and then obviously we, as I said, that we're very keen on identifying challenges, but we're also just as keen on identifying solutions. So we wanted to, once we've consolidated the evidence and articulated the problem, we wanted to spend just as much time on exploring the solutions. But We'll get to that part of the conversation in a little while. That's just a bit of context for this particular paper. That's um, fantastic. And I, mu I must say it's a really useful and really detailed paper. So thank you for the time and effort and everybody's energy that's gone into it. Um, I'm really interested in what the people that are on the ground working um, with the women yeah. shared in relation to their experience. I'm not sure, Catherine, if you uh, or Elena wanted to comment on that. Yeah, so the, um, the workers that we spoke to essentially highlighted and, and there's a range of different pathways that Catherine will kind of talk us through, um, but highlighted perhaps as overarching themes the way in which a system that is designed to respond to the violent offending of men is having a disproportionate response on, the, on, on women, most of whom are in the system because they themselves have experienced male violence. Um, and the other thing that they highlight is, is that essentially when women have are in contact with the criminal justice system, it's at a point on a trajectory of a range of needs which become compounded, which might start with their experience of harm, but then can become compounded over time by um, a whole range of different issues and needs, um, which then mean that they present to the system and in ways that are viewed or labelled by the system as particularly complex. And so one of the common themes across all of the agencies with whom we consulted was essentially that their clients always slip through the gaps because they're not the more straightforward clients that a lot of the service, different service systems, whether it's family violence or mental health or alcohol and drug, any other kind of service are expecting to be able to deal with a particular client with one set of one need and where people have a whole range of different needs, all of which haven't been addressed by the service system and then present with this kind of compounded, this assortment of really acute needs instead of it being in recognition of as a failure of the system it's labelled as essentially kind of a pathologising of the woman that she is too complex to engage and so they then they won't do the work. 
And so if there were two overarching themes that we want to highlight, perhaps the third one is just simply that the solution does not lie in the extension of the corrections industry into people's lives, that it lies in early intervention and community-based responses because where women are have these conditions and orders imposed upon them um, and then you know, they don't comply for a whole range of reasons that brought them into contact with the criminal justice system in the first place. Again, they experience that kind of monitoring and um, surveillance by the extension of the corrections industry is incredibly punitive and it compounds the harm even further. But that's enough for me. I reckon I'll throw over to Catherine to talk about what she found, what we found in the actual, in the evidence. Thanks, Catherine. <clears throat> Thanks for that. Yeah, look, I'm just going to go, go back a step and look at some three key insights that came from the project. Um, the first is just to look at the rate at which we're locking up women in Australia and more specifically in Victoria. The reasons behind Victoria's escalating imprisonment rate, female imprisonment rate, and the ways in which women's experience of the justice system and the impact it has on them differs from that of men. And Elaine has already, you know, indicated um, that. I just wanted to preface this discussion by saying that Victoria and Australia are bound by international rules relating to the imprisonment of women. These are known as the Bangkok Rules, and they were established by the UN in 2010. They set out standards for governments on criminal justice responses to women and how best to cater for their needs and, it and they require um, that governments, where possible, divert women from prison. So that's kind of the context in which um, criminal justice systems operate. So when you look at the rate at which women in Victoria are being incarcerated, it's clear that we're not doing enough to meet these standards. In Victoria, women are the fastest growing cohort in the prison population. While um, they only form a very small percentage of people in prison, around about 7%, women, and particularly Aboriginal women, are being imprisoned at a much faster rate than men. In the 10 years to June 2018, the number of women in prison in Victoria increased by almost 138%, which compared to 81% increase for the male prison population over that time. For Aboriginal women, the number entering prison in Victoria more than tripled between 2012 and 2018. So, you know, while academics have characterised Australia's Aboriginal people overall as being the most incarcerated group in the world, Aboriginal women in Victoria are jailed at a particularly high rate that exceeds even that of Aboriginal men. Um, in an international context, Australia imprisons more women per 1,000 head of population than Canada, the UK and many European countries. And when you look at prisoner numbers overall, Victoria has moved from having one of the lowest incarceration rates in the world in 1992, one of the highest in 2018. The area that um, has seen the greatest growth in recent years is women who are held on remand. Uh, that refers to women who haven't yet been found guilty of any offence, but are waiting for their matter to be heard. And a greater proportion of women than men are held on remand and this has been a pretty consistent trend in recent years. So 
you know, now if we ask what are the reasons for that we're seeing more women enter prison? And as Elena said, that's a complex question to unpack. But when you look at the research on women in the justice system, there are some clear systemic drivers that stand out, both in the criminal justice system and more, bro more broadly in how we as a society respond to women's experiences of violence and abuse. One of the most striking statistics in the literature is the proportion of women who end up in prison who are themselves victims of crime. It's, it's almost universal. Um, one study estimated that between 77% and 90% of women in prison have prior trauma exposure due to sexual, physical or emotional abuse occurring either in childhood or as an adult or, or both. We know that this trauma, when not addressed, can push women into poverty, homelessness, drug use, and as a consequence of that, contact with the justice system. There are really high rates of mental and physical illness amongst women entering jail. Women in prison are more likely than men to experience suicide attempts and self-harm. And there was a study in the UK that found that um, women in prison have five times the rate of self-harm as men. Women are also more likely to have a substance over overdose in prison and they face a greater risk of premature unnatural death following release from prison. Um, there are particularly high rates of men mental illness amongst Aboriginal women in prison. In one study, 92.3% of the sample of Aboriginal women in prison had a form of mental illness, and 46% met one criterion of PTSD. And that compared to 14.7% of Aboriginal men. So it's, it's a much higher rate for women. Um, drug and alcohol dependence, commonly linked to you know, experiences of trauma, play a, a big part in women's pathway to prison. Women in prison are more likely than men to have committed offences while under the influence of substances or in order to support their substance dependence. And we know from prison data that um, women serving a second or subsequent sentence, 90% um, of, of their offences are related to drug and alcohol dependence. And given the high rates of trauma amongst Aboriginal women, it's not surprising that there are also high rates of alcohol and drug use. A 2013 Victorian study found that 93.9% of Aboriginal women in prison reported current substance dependence. So, you know, that's why programs such as Living Free that link young women up with services they need is such an important early intervention approach. It's, you know, it's why we were so excited to be part of this podcast. Um, there's also growing awareness that uh, aspects of the criminal justice itself contribute to escalating female imprisonment rate. In particular, Victoria's um, bail laws are, are problematic. Victoria has the most complex and restrictive bail laws in Australia passed in response to a series of high profile violent crimes, which were committed mainly by men. And these have had the unintended effect of making it harder for people charged with nonviolent offences, which is most commonly women, to qualify for bail. 
In addition to that, high rates of mental health issues, homelessness and substance addiction increase the likelihood that women will be refused bail due to a perceived risk of um, them reoffending. And, and also these issues make it harder for women to comply with bail conditions. And under Victorian bail laws, breaching bail is a criminal offence. So a woman who's dealing with multiple challenges who doesn't meet a bail condition, even if it's you know, a technical thing like needing to reside at a certain address, is then pushed even further into criminalisation. Policing also plays a part in the rate at which women are in prison. Um, women are charged most commonly with um, non-violent offences, property or economic crimes and low-level drug offences. Um, and this makes some good candidates for programs that um, divert women from the criminal justice system and link them in with support. And um, so, you know, we wanted to look at what kind of diversion programs could be implemented at the policing level. Sentencing is also um, an important part of this picture. And um, there's evidence from both Australia and New Zealand that between 2005 and 2012, there was increase, an increase of around 13% in the number of women receiving a custodial sentence. Uh, in Victoria, we've seen non-custodial sentencing options available to judges and magistrates like suspended sentences and community-based orders reducing um, in time, over time. And um, like other states, Victoria has also introduced some mandatory sentencing laws for particular offences. So there's been this clear drift towards more severe penalties and to the last point that I wanted to raise, and I just wanted to touch very briefly on what the research says about women's experiences of the justice system. That's an issue that Dorothy can speak to much more powerfully, I think, than the research, but just to provide a brief overview. Um, because women are charged with less serious offending and are more likely to enter prison on remand or following, or, yeah, on remand, women tend to spend shorter, um, but very disruptive periods of custody. The, the time that they spend in, in, on remand or on a short sentence is not enough for them to access a program to help them with the issues that got them into prison in the first place, but it's certainly long enough for them to lose care of their kids, to lose their job or to lose their housing. Women are also more likely than men to be the primary carer of dependent children when they're in prison. So there's the double punishment that um, both the women and their children experience when women are in prison. We know that women in prison who lose custody of their children are at higher risk of self-harm and more likely to return to custody than women whose connection with their children has been supported. There's also the wider social harm caused by the disruption in the children's lives when they're separated from their mothers, particularly uh, when they're placed in out-of-home care which evidence clearly shows is a, a well-recognised path to the youth justice system. And, and in conclusion, the argument that imprisonment is not an effective way to reduce crime or rehabilitate is particularly relevant to women. With women cycling in and out of prison with limited access to any prison programs, but rather you know, having their lives severely disrupted, um, 
the system is increasing the likelihood of further contact with police and prisons. I, I cannot agree highly enough with every every sentiment that you've made, Catherine. And uh, with four years of working with um, young girls and women in contact with the justice system, we absolutely see that intergenerational cycle um, and that cycling through the system for not only the women but their children as well. So, yeah, thank you for those insights. Elena, do you have any? Yeah, well, I think it would be at this point this is where we want to bring in the, ex the real expertise, and that is uh, Dorothy Armstrong, who is um, a lived experience expert and peer support worker at the CIJ. And Dorothy's been um, a complete, completely amazing support to us you know, throughout the last few years, uh, drawing on her own experience um, of the criminal justice system. But I always reflect when we're sort of going through these statistics in particular Dorothy is like on the one hand how um, kind of vindicating it can be to hear that your own experience is not just you're not alone but at the same time to hear what again what a system-wide issue is also can be pretty um, pretty devastating over and over again to think about how every aspect of the system is creating barriers or acting to push women back into contact with a system that does them such harm. I just wonder if you can kind of, if you have any reflections, drawing on your own experience, but um, thinking about what what that cycle in is like in particular, that sort of the fact that prison doesn't, uh, the criminal justice system does not rehabilitate. Yeah, thank you, Elena. Um, yeah, I'm just really taken again um, by listening to the findings um, and it's really overwhelming to hear and one of the reasons is because I, I so identify and relate to it. And yeah, it's, it is, it's really difficult. Um, even still. Um, and yeah, I, I absolutely agree with the findings. And for me, like all the way through, it's just like tick, 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 um, you know, for what I experienced in my life, um, you know, from a young child. Um, I mean, and at the time I was really quite oblivious and I understand that because I was a child, you know, and I didn't understand, um, you know, but I'm the youngest of a very large family but my family was broken, you know, by the time, you know, I was born and, you know, intergenerational trauma. I think it's really polite language. Um, it's really polite language for, you know, I can only speak for myself, but say what I grew up with and, you know, the effects of that and, um, and the ongoing effects of that. And, um, you know, the things that are talked about in the paper, the, 
the physical, the sexual abuse, the emotional abuse, and you know, not just from my family, but also like random people and, you know, even um, staff in the system itself, you know. Um, yeah, you might have to give me some direction, Elaine, because I could just go on and There's on. a lot there. There's a lot yeah. there. I think one of the things that you and I talk about quite a bit and sorry, and which I think is helpful is um, to think about the fact that at no point during your contact did, did, with the system did anyone ask what's happened to you. And I just wondered if you could sort of think about, tell us what the, the impacts of that are when people don't ask when you're coming into contact with police and when, when you're coming into the prison environment um, and what difference it might make if they did. Yeah. Um, thank you. So <clears throat> there's still, even to this day, and even now, like I can, I can feel it inside of me. There's a part of me that just wants to scream with just, yeah. Um, I, exactly like you said, Elena, I was never asked what was going on. I was never asked anything about me, you know, what was happening in my life. And, you know, I, I grew up in family violence. And again, I understand more clearly today that my experiences as a young person really shaped my decisions as I got older. And so I chose men that were really violent and um, yeah, it was just shocking. And even when I, which quite often I did, presented, you know, obviously beaten, it's like nobody cared. Nobody cared about what had happened to me. Nobody asked me, you know, what's going on. Um, anything, nothing personal about any interaction I ever had with anybody, whether it was police, whether it's corrections, and certainly not prison officers, you know, or even, you know, the court system. No, just, it was just, I mean, the way it felt was nobody cared. And exactly like you said before, you're in the too hard basket, like just too much, not gonna deal with you. And, and you know, exactly like you said, I learned very early on that even if I asked for help, I never got it. It, it never came. So, you know, I didn't ask for help and I didn't have anybody to turn to. Um, and it just, and it astounds me still, if I think about it, of what was happening to me. And I was always very honest about what, you know, why I presented the way I did or what was happening and just nothing. And even... You know, there were times I would call us with this one particular partner 
Um, and unbeknownst to me, he was, you know, known to police. And I'd only been with this man about three days, and that was the first time that he, you know, he beat me. And, you know, the neighbours called the police and he took off. When the police showed up, and I think there were four or five of them, so, again, in hindsight, this shows me the sort of person that he was, you know, that four or five officers showed up. And because he'd left, I got a beating and I actually got locked up. They were so angry, probably, that they were called and that he wasn't there, so they took it out on me and I got locked up. It's a, it's a fine line, isn't it? But you know, it, well, no, it's not a fine line. But when when victims become viewed as the offenders, all of that narrative that is behind, all of that backstory is completely forgotten. And um, that's really clear, Dottie, That that's that's what you've experienced, and and that is the system, and that is why we desperately need reform. Absolutely. Um... And something, yeah. yeah, we've been talking about a little bit recently across a couple of projects that Dottie's help, helped us with is the way often the system is driven by its own needs and not the needs of the people who need its help. Um, and that police example or misidentification of people who are victim survivors of violence um, is a good, a very clear example because police are saying, well, I'm supposed to do something and I'm irritated because I've been called out and I know I have to do this stuff around making, you know, identifying someone. So you're in the spotlight and not thinking about addressing every situation in terms of dealing with the person who is in front of you and asking them what's happened. Yep. But I should, yeah, maybe perhaps we can move to Catherine talking us through some of the solutions that or the opportunities for reform that we proposed. Yeah, thanks, Elena, and thanks, Dottie, yet again. <laughs> it's always um, amazing to, to hear from you. Um, look, I, and I'm conscious that I'm kind of hogging the airwaves here, but um, I'm going to provide a very high-level overview about the um, options for reform that we discussed in the paper. And I just wanted to emphasise that a lot of the solutions we propose in the paper are not new, um, but we were drawing on recommendations that have been made previously and a lot of hard work over many decades um, on this issue. And we also brought together some examples of some innovative approaches that are being applied elsewhere. Um, we came up with a, a sort of five foundations of reform, so five areas that we want to concentrate on. And it's, it was really more like signposting government, some, um, some, some way to move forward to address this issue. Um, most of these reforms are specific to women and some have wider application. And, um, and we were proposing that they could be trialled with women. Um, so, you know, it would be a really great thing to act on quickly and it would provide an opportunity to trial some reforms that might have wider application. So the first foundation, foundation one, um, is to commit, invest and coordinate. 
and that was looking at establishing a women's justice reinvestment strategy, a bit like the UK female offender strategy, um, which would be a whole of government bipartisan approach um, that commits to investing for better long-term outcomes and so not always short-term knee-jerk reactions, but really looking at proper investment with an eye to long-term outcomes and a focus on early intervention and, and an evidence-based approach. This sort of draws heavily on the idea of justice reinvestment, which is about you know, meeting targets to reduce the number of women in prison and redirecting the savings from, from that into support in the community. So more broadly, um, we were also talking about uh, the need to define the objectives of key bits of criminal justice legislation, such as the Corrections Act, the Bail Act. For example, the Corrections Act, doesn't say anything uh, in the purpose section about, you know, rehabilitating people, which I think a lot of people would be very surprised to, to hear. Um, we also talked about the option of setting up an independent body to make justice reform decisions. And again, that's to avoid knee-jerk political responses um, to, you know, um, violent offending, as was the case with the bail reforms that have these damaging and sometimes unintended impacts down the line. The other area of reform was to take quick action to address some clear systemic drivers. So that is looking at reforming, in, in, you know, in, looking into the bail reforms, making reforms, make them simpler by removing the multiple tests that you have to meet to be eligible for bail. Um, and replacing it with one test of, you know, is there an unacceptable risk to community safety if this person is bailed? We want to see Victoria returning to having a presumption for bail, for release on bail. Um, and if you look at New York City, they recent reforms have mandated in legislation that remand is, is not to be used against people charged with non-violent non crimes. And they're, um, they're predicting a reduction in the remand rate of around about 43%. We also talk, and this is something that we, we talk a lot about, is raising the age of criminal responsibility. So preventing early contact with the criminal justice system. We talk about um, setting up police diversion programs for women, like the Curry Women's Diversion Program, that just steer women away from prosecution and criminal involvement. Um, and we also discuss expanding the kinds of community-based sentencing options that are available and possibly looking at the prohibition against the use of custody for offences subject to a sentence of less than six months. Um, the third foundation of reform is about supporting, rehabilitating and integrating. And this is where we talk about the unavoidable need to invest in supports in the community. So um, th there's also a need to set targets for linking women to the supports that they need with specific targets for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. And we also um, outline um, initiatives that are happening in the UK and in New South Wales, whereby um, independent women's support hubs are established in the community that women can be referred to. There's the Together Women Project in the UK, 
and the Miranda Project in New South Wales. And um, one of our recommendations is that, you know, we, ex we explore that option, setting, a setting up a similar um, community-based support in Victoria. The fourth foundation is ensuring that there's community-led action to address the over-representation of Aboriginal women. And, and that is looking at setting um, specific targets in this women's justice reinvestment strategy, in the Aboriginal justice agreements, and in the closing the gap strategy to reducing women's imprisonment and using the community grounded approaches that are established, already established under the Aboriginal justice agreement to implement uh, reforms to achieve those targets. So that is using, you know, the community based um, consultative mechanisms that already exist. Um, we talk about the need to uh, improve support for Aboriginal people who are victims of crime, and we've done some work in that area with review of the victim services um, system in Victoria. And as a matter of urgency, there's a real need to invest in culturally appropriate programs for Aboriginal women in the criminal justice system. And the final area of reform is uh, relates to researching, evaluating and sharing knowledge. Um, th this recognises that any approach we take has to be evidence-based. So we need a lot of research to fill the many knowledge gaps on women's experiences of certain parts of the criminal justice system. There's still a lot that we don't know about. For example, um, how do women experience um, therapeutic courts and community corrections orders? Um, as part of this, there needs to be a commitment to culturally safe and community-led research as it relates to Aboriginal women. Um, and we also need to have better ways of measuring the impact of these programs. So not just using you know, recidivism as, as an outcome measure, but having more nuanced measures that are more holistic and, and are trauma-informed. And that could be looking at women's you know, access to services that they need or being able to secure housing or, you know, uh, being reunited with the children. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a high level package of reforms that hopefully provides some kind of mud map for Victoria um, getting out of the mess of its in. Um, absolutely. And I think um, you speak to the high level reforms, but um, what I really heard coming along strongly there was that need to really put women at the centre, that lived experience, like any reforms need to really capture um, women's experiences and then work from there. Look at, look, look at, you know, what needs to be done in the service system for reform as well as the justice system it needs to work more cohesively together so yeah. um uh, you know in and i know you know i i feel like i can provide a voice for a lot of our women that we've had through living free and every single one of them would agree that um they they have not been listened to like Dottie said like they have not been asked they have not you know especially when they hit the justice system and their attempts to access services um you mentioned it right at the start have have gone um by the wayside because there's just you know too many things too many presenting needs and say put in the too hard basket so um it, you know from from direct experience everything that you've um 
all of those high level reforms, uh, there's actually a lot of things that could be mobilised and, and happen in the here and now. Yeah, that's right. Mm. And I mean, Dorothy is an example of, um, of having a, an asp a chapter in her story where she can talk about the difference that it does make <laughs> when you get um, actually sort of to be, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, <laughs> Dorothy, so I'm going to ask you, um, what has made the most difference to you in recent years in terms, and what, and perhaps what would that have done if you'd had that sort of experience of the last few years a bit earlier in your life? What's made all the difference for me, Elena, is, um, is starting to work with the Centre for Innovative Justice. When, when I was initially asked about a former project, um, it was two women, so it was the CIJ and also another organisation working together on this particular project. And I was asked um, what had happened to me and it was really clear that these women wanted to hear what I had to say and it was it was so overwhelming to have that experience. I just broke down and cried in front of these two strangers. It was the first time in my life that somebody cared enough to ask me what had happened to me. Um, and since that time, continuing to work with the people at the Centre for Innovative Justice, one of the, one of the things is starting to, to be able to talk about my experiences because, you know, all of my life I've been so filled with shame and fear and so many other things. It was just, I just felt like, you know, concrete on top of me. But also it was, um, but also it was the people at CIJ um, you know, caring about me, treating me with respect, showing me kindness, you know, encouraging me, accepting me as I was, um, not judging me. And that really changed my life and it's enabled me to, it's enabled me to heal and to grow in ways I never ever thought possible. Dottie, I, I have to say that is so powerful and it does speak to many failures of our system that we're not doing that. And, and that, you know, we have this opportunity to listen and learn and um, that therapeutic value, not only for us in doing what we do, but also for our women coming through the system. Um, that, that, that seems like a small thing that we could all do across all services and all systems. Thank you for sharing that. That's, um, you know, being heard, I think, is one of the most invaluable things and I think um, we need to do more of it. Mm. And it's not rocket science, is it? It's not, you know, an co overly complicated thing to ask people working in the system 
to show people who are in contact with the system kindness and respect. But I think it's a, I think it's a reflection of how much the system kind of defaults to its own needs because it's crushed by the weight of what's coming through. Um, and some things that sort of Dorothy kind of speaks a lot to people in positions now of influence and um, power. And she, I think Dorothy, one of the things, if perhaps you could tell about, talk about your experience of sort of talking to magistrates and, and essentially sort of realising it's the first time you've been actually able, been in a position where you're given permission to have that conversation with them, which I think is really stark. Yeah, and really for me too, because my thinking about the justice system has really changed. I mean, you know, for obvious reasons, but so yeah, it was, um, it was a magistrate's conference held over two days, um, you know, here in the city and uh, Stan, the associate director, and another former colleague and myself were invited to um, to that conference. And I think there were over a hundred magistrates in that audience. And while we were giving the presentation, it was the first time in my life that I actually addressed the magistrate. And I'm not even sure how to describe it. It was quite a surreal feeling in that there are all of these magistrates and, you know, not everybody listens, I understand that, but to just have this room full of magistrates and I was the one talking and they weren't. But, and this is long after my contact with the justice system. So never once in my life, I didn't even think I had the right to speak to a magistrate. I didn't know that I was allowed to do that. I was never offered that and it never happened. My, it was always in somebody else's hands and my complete trust was in the solicitor to communicate to the magistrate really important things about me. And that didn't happen. And, you know, on reflection, it, it really doesn't matter on reflection what I think because it's done, it's gone. But just to, to know things now and have a better understanding of how things work and to realise that all that time, you know, I actually had the right to do that and that and that, and I never knew. And had I known, I would have done that because the only person I ever had in my life was me. I didn't have family. I didn't have supports. I didn't have anything. So the best person to be fighting for me was me. I just didn't know I could do that. And yet 
And Lisa, I'll um, leave you to talk about living free in a minute because it's just so important to um, show, you know, what the alternative could look like. Um, but one of the things that also continuously um, strikes me about Dorothy is, despite her experiences, is her generosity and compassion, including for people working in the system. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, she, <laughs> I'm just thinking about that recent project where you can ha helped us um, looking at, I won't go into the detail of it because, um, but a particular process that, uh, that the court has that is designed to help people um, who have experienced harm and in going through this process, um, we realised that yet again, it was defaulting to the system's needs. And despite the overwhelming realisation of what that looked like, Dorothy still had a lot of sympathy for people who are kind of working in the system day in, day out. So I don't know whether you have any further reflections on that, but it's just in, over the last few years when you've had a lot of interaction with people, you still come away with that, which I think is amazing. Thank you. Uh, my first response was going to say having an acquired brain injury, but um, no, because for whatever reason, I, I can be understanding and I can see things from, well, we're talking about the justice system, so I, I can, um, you know, imagine things from another point of view and I can certainly put myself in their shoes how I would feel to be in that situation um, and deep down like I don't want to have I don't want to feel badly about another human being I don't want to hold resentments against anybody and I don't want to carry I think really because I did for so many years and it really destroyed me as a person. And, you know, my mind, my mind used to be like a war zone. I just kind of used to rage inside at the injustice, um, you know, and the pain that I felt. And um, sometimes I wonder how I made it through, but. I really do know and understand that inherently that's who I am as a person, you know, and I remember, you know, when I was little, you know, I was like that before things happened. So I, I just think I'm so grateful and, and I think it's just so incredible that in spite of somehow um, I've been able to sort of go back to that kind of a place where it's like I'm... I'm me again, you know, I'm not, I'm not all of my experiences, so to speak, and I'm not stuck like I was for so many years and just being affected every day by what had happened to me. Yeah. Just I still wouldn't you... mind a quiet chat in a room with some of them, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would do wonders. <laughs> Lisa, sorry, go on. I'll run the oh. training programs. 
Well, uh, Dottie, I, I think that there's um, the system overall should really adopt your level of empathy, um, and maybe we would um, we would definitely see changes then. And something else that you touched on about feeling heard in front of the magistrates and not having that opportunity, like they, these are things that we can we can absolutely support now. You know, our women to have a voice in the, in those situations and to hear how therapeutic that was for you and how I guess empowering in a sense that that was to be listened to um, I think every woman that has had contact with the justice system deserves that opportunity and, and it just speaks to how powerful it is so um, I, I'm going to finish up because I'm conscious that we've um, we could talk I think for, for hours on this topic um, something that I wanted to ask each one of you is Systemic reform does take a long time, but I've actually, I've heard from Dottie things that we could change now, that we could do slightly differently to, to improve women's experiences of the system. So, Elena, um, I'll start with you. Is there one thing that we could do now? Um, what would be the one thing? I know that's a hard ask. Uh it is a hard ask, but I think um, for me it's always about policy settings and systems because if you don't have the courage and the clarity to recognise that you've stuffed up, um, then you, and you can't, this is not something that you can address with Band-Aids. We have a major systemic challenge and it can only be addressed when we recognise that we need to do things differently um, and doing those, doing those things differently need a need leadership at, at a government level and across government because if you can set the tone and say yep we recognise that this is a major problem we've been part of its creation but now we're going to be part of the solution and so yeah, there's lots and lots of things that are just as important to happen on the ground. Um, but I suppose because I've worked in and around policy and government for a long time, I can see that glaring gap at the moment. And I am, will continue to advocate ferociously until it's addressed. Well, I'm very glad we have you there advocating, that's for sure. Catherine? Yeah, Elena talked about the macro. I want to go to the micro. One thing that um, we heard in talking to service, you know, agencies that work with women was that when women are released from prison, they can, it's a really little thing that could be fixed. When they're released from prison, it can be late at night. They have no mobile phone. They have no Mikey. They're not dressed adequately for the weather. And I just think, you know, this is where respect and empathy comes in. Just think about what you're releasing these women to. Amazing. That's something, like you said, micro, so small. However, um, something that can be addressed quite quite easily, actually, um, with some intention. And, Dottie, I um, already have picked up so many things that we could do in the here and now, right now. But is there anything else that you would like us to take on, our listeners to take on, that can improve women's experiences in contact with the justice system? 
Absolutely. Can we do like a second podcast as well? (laughs) I am open to anything. Uh, You know, this is where I learn. I get my motivation. I get my passion. And hopefully so does our audience. So, oh, I'm I'm open to anything. Remember that, ladies. (laughs) So for me, you know, first contact with the system starts with police. So I think um, I, I understand exactly what Elena and Catherine both said. But for me, like being on this side of the fence, having a different experience with police, I, I think could and would make all the difference. The way they treat people. And even I was thinking about this before, discretion. Police have discretion to well, everything, but even to charge people. And just thinking about when I was a lot younger, some things that I was charged with, even the first thing I was charged with, the police absolutely had, they had discretion, but they were actually really nasty. And they were really quite horrible towards me. And that that really impacted my life. Now, even though I'm the one who did that, There was no help coming from the police. There was no consideration of this is a young person. This could affect like nothing. And so, yeah, I think some training, weeding out, all sorts of stuff with police would be a really great uh, starter and a real kind of, um, you know, something between people coming into contact with them, some kind of safety barrier. Can I say, Dottie, that's... um we have had a really positive experience um, with our police down here that have a really proactive focus on preventative policing. And so there is definitely um, many people that are even working within the police that also see that that also see that they are a pivotal point in, in and an opportunity where people can actually be diverted from this entrenchment in the system. So um, I, I would hope that your sentiments are being considered in the police even now. So hopefully that will just grow. And I think, Lisa, that kind of actually sums up a lot of the challenges is that um, it, the experience that you're having with police at the moment demonstrates that it is possible <laughs> for police to take a different approach. It is possible for them to think about diversionary approaches. And it's just the same in the court, in the courts. Um, the court judicial officers have a whole range of options available to them, which the more creative and proactive ones use to ensure that the experience or the contact with the court is as therapeutic or useful as possible, um, but most don't use those options. And so it's about, because it's easier to default, say, oh, I can't, I have to do this. And police will say, oh, I have to charge. It's like, no, you don't. Um, But it takes a lot of kind of holding up a mirror and saying, "Look, look at what are the options available to you really? And how might this help everyone? Because it's not just about 
the person who's affected is the most important, but it's actually making sure that we use any contact with the system in a way that doesn't entrench harm, um, which is what it usually does at the moment. I, uh, yeah, thank you, um, Dottie, Elena and Catherine for being part of this podcast. It does, um, it spurs in that desire to create that change and advocate for change. So um, I really appreciate the time, um, your journey, your experiences and the paper as well. So um, thank you and um, good luck with the continuing advocacy. Thanks very much for having us, Lisa. Real pleasure. Thank Thanks. you, Lisa.